Hey, I'm really excited, if you don't know Jolene Miller, to introduce to you, her to you uh, today. How many of you know Jolene personally? You have a personal relationship with Jolene Miller? Or you snap a picture to the people that have a personal relationship with you. Um, Jolene's been part of our church in one capacity or another for like decades and decades, right? Yeah, and um, I asked Jolene to speak, uh, well, number one, because I think she's good at it, and uh, she's also a trained and licensed counselor, so she does a lot of counseling. She works with um, some parachurch ministries, women at the cross still, and which is kind of cool because they do these great events and they don't have to wear name tags. Did you know that? Because all the women at the cross are named Mary. It's, check it out in the Bible. And uh, actually, we're Mary, and uh, if you can explain that to me, I'll give you a free donut, okay? But um, that's why I'm excited to have her speak. But most of all, I'm excited to have Jolene speak because she's been a pastor to me. Um, she's been a part of our board, and she's one of those people that I find it pretty easy to see Jesus in. And you know, we were talking about how uh, in Romans, every good decision in us is like really a decision of Jesus manifesting in us. Remember the picture of all the red dots? So I'm just saying I see a whole lot of red dots in Jolene, and they have a unique shape that's different than the shape of the red dots and other people. And so I'm excited uh, for Jolene to share her heart. I know, it's stressful talking, right? It is. So just let them see your red dots, okay? And they'll be... Red dots, black dots, uh, yeah, it's yeah. all here. Oh, right, the black dots are part of the whole story, <laughs> right? Here. So let's, uh, let me pray for Jolene and us together, all right? So, Father, I just thank you so very much for Jolene. I bless her, and Lord, I ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts, and uh, Father, that you would, um, that w w Lord, we would realize that, wow, that's not just Jolene up there, that's, that's Jesus. And Lord, that's true, um, but I ask that we would see it and we would hear it. In your name, amen. amen. You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer do I have to put up with you? Who is my mother and my brothers? You of little faith, do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes that fail to hear, to eyes that fail to see, and ears that fail to hear? Do you not remember? Could you not stay awake with me for one hour? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you to do? Do you still not understand? Whoops, I need that. These are questions that Jesus posed to his followers and they pierce us. I actually kind of like the ones he says to the Pharisees more because I like to consider that they're a them and not a me, but really, they're a me. He says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how do you speak good things when evil is in your heart? Matthew and Luke tell us, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Ouch. Luke, he says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? 
Have you not read, and of course they had because they studied most of their lives. Have you not read this in scripture? Like, that's not nice. That's not how I like to imagine Jesus. I kind of like John's Jesus better. The one who calls me in my brokenness and is soft and gentle, but it's important to consider how do you answer these questions because they're in the book. And how we answer them is really important because we need them. Have you not read in the scripture? Why don't you understand how to interpret the times through my lens? Do you not see or hear? Where is my heart hardened? And how small is my faith? And why do I call Jesus Lord and not do what he tells me? Yep, this topic was a bit bigger bite than I first imagined it was going to be, which was not smart on my part. But in part, it was because in the questions, I heard my own story and the critical voice of my father when he would ask me questions. He'd be critical, sneering, angry, hateful, punitive, humiliating, like you think you're so smart, you don't know nothing. And man, I started to struggle. I really struggled because, and then I started asking the questions, well, Jesus, what was your tone? I imagine it was somewhere between frustration and disappointment and maybe even a little desperation because Jesus knew how short his time was and it's like, you people need to get this or the game is over. I need you to understand so you can carry this on when, I was, when I'm gone. But I was struggling to find the redemption and the healing in it. Knowing that God uses all things for our good, what was Jesus getting at? And I found an indicator in Matthew. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hang in there, it gets better. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier things of the law, justice, mercy, faith. It is these that you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Bing, bing, bing. A connection began to be made because God had already been bringing Micah 6-8 to my mind. Like, I couldn't really figure that out because I hadn't been able to put together, like, how do these questions relate to this? So we got Jesus over here about, what, 28, the year 28? I don't know, it's that common era. It can't be AD, but I think it, technically it is. Um, but we have to go back to about 8th century BC to Micah. Micah is an old-timey guy. Oh, I need that. His name actually means who is like Yahweh. I like Old Testament names. I think they're kind of cool. Who is like Yahweh? He was the clan of Reuben. He was a descendant of King Saul. And he prophesied under the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah and a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. So it kind of gives you an idea like he's way back here as the whole kingdom of Israel is falling apart and trying to wake them up. His messages revolved around constantly renouncing the oppression of the poor. 
He characterized the rich as devising ways in which to cheat the poor out of their land. People were evicted from their homes, had their possessions taken by their fellow Israelis, their fellow citizens. The marketplace was full of injustice and deception. The rulers of the country, who had the responsibility of keeping things just, did the opposite. He denounced the religious practices of the nation. The people were worshiping other gods. They didn't quit believing and worshiping in the God of Judah, but they combined this worship with devotion to other deities. The people believed that all that was necessary of them was to bring their sacrifices and offerings to the temple, and no relationship was acknowledged between their activities in the temple and their activity in daily life. Micah attempted to correct this misperception by arguing that God is not just interested in the physical act of making a sacrifice, but he's supremely concerned with obedience that extends to our daily life. Like, this is getting interesting. Does that resonate with any of you? Do you see any of that? What God says in the Old Testament is really important for us today. Because what Ecclesiastes says is true, there's nothing new under the sun and the human character does not change. We see it and it pierces us, like we're fighting for the right. So in Micah 6.8 he says, he's already told you, O man. And Jesus said, it is these you ought to have practice without neglecting others. So he's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So let's look at that for a little bit. He, Jehovah, has told you. I, I actually looked up the, the words for this. Nagod is the word. God has made apparent clear. His direction stands boldly out. He's not hiding what he wants us to do and what he needs us to do, what his his map is for us. To all human beings, O oh man, Adam, mortals, human beings. So God has made apparent and clear. It's, his direction stands boldly out to all human beings what is good, tobe, kind, ethical, right, correct, for the positive welfare of, the prosperity, happiness, moral good, bounty, goodness, good benefit. It's really one of the gifts that God gave through the Jews that before God gave the law to the Jews, no matter how much we kind of chafe against it, it was kind of the wild, wild west everywhere. If I wanted something, I took it. I fought for it. If I wanted it back, if somebody else took something from me, I had to go fight for that. Like there was just lawlessness everywhere. It wasn't a sin to lie if it benefited me, like why not? I mean, did you ever think about that? The reason God had to say, do it this way, is because people weren't doing it that way. We had no sense, and so he says, I've made it plain, and this is what's good, and he defines that. And then it says, and what does the Lord require of you? The word Lord there is Jehovah, the existing one. It's the proper name of the true God, our God. Require, darash. I practice that because you have to roll the R's. Darash. It means to properly tread. 
It's the idea of doing something so often, it's like you're creating a familiar path and you tamp it down. This becomes so much a part of my nature. It's a well-tread path. I just do it. I just do good. I can't help it. To seek, to re resort to, to seek of God with care, and to follow in the pursuit of. Justice. So God requires all human beings, he's made it clean, do what's good, kind, ethical, moral, bountiful, for the positive welfare of. To do justice, mishpat. It means to do it properly, right, with rectitude, moral rightness. The quality or the condition of being correct. But I really liked going back into Leviticus where he defines what justice looks like. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. Isn't that interesting? You shall not be partial to the poor or to the great. And in Deuteronomy, he says you must not distort justice. You must not show partiality and you must not accept bribes. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Hmm. Glad that happens in the past and never today. We already know what justice looks like. And then I thought this was interesting. He said to love kindness. The word love here is ahav. It's the idea to breathe after as a longing. I want this, I desire this, I'm inclined to kindness. It's an idea of our human devotion or affection, an appetite, typically for an object, food, drink, sleep, wisdom, in this case, kindness. Desire, have an appetite for kindness out of your love for God. And the kindness there is hesed. If you're unfamiliar with hesed, I would advise you to look up the library of Peter's sermons. He does a lot on hesed. Mercy, merciful, kindness, favor, good, godliness, goodness, kindness, faithfulness. Kindness of human to human in doing favors that benefit, acting benevolently and showing the kindness of God. In a context, in 2 Samuel, King David says, is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? That's the kind of kindness that he wants us to love, to breathe after, to need, to devote ourselves to. And to walk, halak, as a manner of life, and it, it literally means to go, walk, come, depart, perceive, move, go along, come along. In everything that you do, in every way that you move, walk humbly with your God. Humbly, to saw, to act submissively and modestly, to show humility. And I thought it was interesting that this term of God is Elohim. So the one true God calls us, requires of us, to do justice, to love kindness, and seek after it, and to walk humbly with the supreme God, the divine one. 
indifference to him. Wow. So when I changed my filter and began to look at that the questions of Jesus are designed to help us to do what his father and ours has already made plain to us to do and to empower us to do those things. I kind of think the order is backwards. God didn't ask me to edit this. But I'm not sure that we can do justice and love kindness if we're not walking humbly, shoulder to shoulder, in our every movement, in our every thought, in our coming and our going with our God. So my filter began to change, and then I began to notice some things about Jesus' questions. One, he never asked the question for information. He always knows the answer. And two, they are all exposing, and at the same time, they are an invitation should we choose to accept it. He tells us only what he speak, that he only speaks what the Father speaks, and using 9, Micah 6, 8 as a framework, his questions guide us towards what's already been told of us. As our shepherd, his rod guides us and corrects us, which doesn't feel great. But his staff comforts us. So underlying his questions, not only the piercing ones, don't you get it? You brood of vipers, you hypocrite, like, come on, you should know this. Don't make it hard for people to get to me. That's what was breaking his heart about the Pharisees and the religious people. They were making it hard for everybody to get to him. He didn't want that, he wanted it to be easy. There were many times when he healed on the Sabbath and they would get all kerfuffled and their feathers ruffled and he'd say, well, like, shouldn't this woman who's bent over for 18 years, chained by Satan, be freed by God on the Sabbath? You hypocrites. God is a good God. So, underlying his questions are another set of questions. Will you trust me? Will you believe me? And will you obey me? Jesus must expose because there can't be an invitation to something new unless wrongness is exposed. For example, the woman at the well. She wanted the living water. She wanted Jesus, the Messiah. But she couldn't have it until she confessed the truth about what her life was in that moment. She was a Samaritan, not good in that culture. She was a woman, that was another step down. And she was a rotten one, like she had five husbands. She was a sinner, she was an adulteress, she was an outcast, like she was not anybody who even dared to hope what Jesus was offering her. But once she chose to trust him and believe him and obey him and open her arms and go, yes, that's true, you've exposed me, then there's the invitation and she can receive. So exposure is a doorway that we walk through for our redemption. If I don't ever feel my need for Jesus, 
I'm good enough. In one of the stories in the New Testament <clears throat> where Jesus is at a party given by one of the Pharisees and he comes in and like you never ask Jesus how the party's going if you don't want to know the answer. But he comes in and this woman shows up and she, she stands behind him and she begins to weep. And she begins to, her tears fall on his feet and she begins to wipe the tears away with her hair and she's just weeping. And the Pharisee says to him, well he's thinking, well, if he really knew who she was, like he wouldn't be letting her do that. And Jesus says to him, knowing what he was thinking, he said, why do you criticize her? Ouch. How many times have you done that? You look at somebody who you think is unworthy and you go, kind of out of the scope. I'm not sure God can save you. Like, you're kind of terrible. I don't like you very much. You're really not belonging in my circles. But he says to him, when I came in, you didn't even offer water for me to wash my feet. But she has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. He pierces his heart and reveals to him and he says to him, well, who has been forgiven much, loves much. But who has been forgiven little, loves little. One of the downsides of being a believer for a long time is you stop being really bad. Like you don't do the really bad stuff anymore. I'm not snorting cocaine on Saturday night. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not murdering people or holding up banks. I'm not overtly jealous. <laughs> Might be covertly jealous. But it's hard to know, like, what do I repent of? Because I'm pretty good. But the problem is, if I don't let Jesus keep exposing me deeper and deeper and deeper, I love little. Because I'm not aware of how much I need Jesus' love. I'm not aware of my own rottenness. Because truly, no matter how good I can make myself, I can never be good enough. I can never make myself. My Mises can never make me everything that God designed for me to be. I can't receive transformation. Now, I want to back up a little bit and talk about this humbly thing. There's a big, huge difference between humiliation, I'm going to do Peter, and a humbling process of God. Humiliation is designed to harm, expose in a negative way, and it results in being shamed and hiding, and it distances from God. But often when we hear these piercing questions, we experience humiliation. And I would offer, that isn't the Lord of your life, that's the enemy of your soul. Humiliation is what other people might do to us and the enemy of our soul does to us. 
Anything he can do to make us fear God and his questions, he will do. And if I'm cowering going, ugh, and if I hear God through this filter, this filter of humiliation, as I originally was, like it can trigger shame and pride and anger, which is what you see in the Pharisees. Like, I've been trying really hard, and here's what you need to remember about them. They thought they were doing it right. They weren't out there trying to be smirch God or give him a bad name. They were trying to do it right. And the crazy thing that Jesus comes and just upsets their apple cart is, I know you're trying to do it right, but you're doing it wrong. It, it's just really not that hard. Oh, but I want to be right. And if I don't, if I'm not willing to look at that and be exposed, I can't step into transformation. But when God wants to humble us, Isaiah tells us that a bruised reed he will not rake. And in all those places that were tender and in all those things that are exposed, God holds up a mirror and he goes, this is what I see. Do you believe me? Because if you believe me, I can take you to a new place. God doesn't expose us to shame us in any way. It's really to invite us into himself because he goes, I've put so much more in you. I want to release it. But there can't be a movement to new life unless we reject the old. God doesn't, God's desire is always to transform us in what he created us to be and what the world needs. That's why Micah is so important, to walk humbly with our God as a day-to-day -day activity, because the world needs it. Like, don't you think our world needs a little more justice? A little more hesed? Where people are desiring kindness instead of my way? I deserve this, you don't deserve that. But we have to accept the truth about ourselves, and we have to accept the truth about him. And, if, and then that leads us to our next set of questions. All throughout all four Gospels, Jesus often asks the questions. Who do the people say that I am? And it's never who he is. <laughs> it's always something else. You're Elijah, come back. You're a good prophet. You're a good man. You're a healer. You're a scoundrel. You're full of shenanigans. You're trying to deceive the people. Today it often sounds something like, well, Jesus was a good man, and I believe he was a prophet. He came and did nice things. He had a lot of really wise things to say, but he's not that much different than Gandhi or Muhammad or whomever else that they're following. Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, Maya Angelou, Einstein, Vincent van Gogh, all these inspirational people, these great philosophers. He's like that. Maybe he's God, but probably not. Because that's just a little too far-fetched. 
So who do you see, who do you say God is? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you actually believe he is who he says he is? He reveals himself all through the gospels, through the parables. We've got the parable of the lost sheep. He even challenges the, the Pharisees when he says, if you have one lost lamb and it falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you go and lift it out? Because of course they would. And he says, then it's not unlawful to do good on the Sabbath. But they were saying it was, even you hypocrites, You'll do good for yourself, but you won't do good for anybody else. He tells of himself through the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lovely thing about the lost coin is it's not a, lot of, a, a big amount of money, but it talks about, and the woman delights. She is happy. She dances that she found her coin. Like how many times has that happened to you? You're going through the laundry and you're folding your clothes and you find $3 in your pocket or a fiver maybe a 20. Wow, I didn't even know I had that. This is awesome. That same kind of delight is what God looks for in you when you receive his exposure and you come to him. And he's like, yay, look at what I can do now. And then as the bridegroom, he's coming. And the 10 virgins, Five of them have their oil, five of them don't, but he's like, I'm like the bridegroom and I'm bringing a party. And I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna care for you and I've, it's gonna be amazing for you. But I love it that you delight in me and that you're waiting for me. He's revealing that God is good. I wanna make you whole. I want you to dance and walk and see and be active with the gifts I've given. Don't be idle. That's a little interesting phrase in the story of the vineyard. Remember that one? The owner of the vineyard goes out and he hires workers at the beginning of the day and then he goes back at noon and then he goes back at the end of the day. And when he goes back at noon and at the end of the day, he goes, well, why are you standing around idle? You got stuff you can do. You're not a lump. I made you to do stuff. Get out and be active. So not only is he calling us out in ways that kind of hurt, because I can, I can be an idler, if any of you took Francis's Enneagram class, I'm a nine, my vice is sloth. I'm good at it. Really good at it. This one is like, I was like, oh yeah, why am I? But I like to work. I feel better when I'm working and I feel God's joy in me when I work. But he's also generous. That's the other thing that he reveals in that parable. He pays everybody the same, and the people at the beginning are mad, like, why are they getting the same as we did? And he asks this great question, are you mad because I'm generous? I think that's kind of what got Peter defrocked, is God's generosity to everyone. I want everyone. Well, that's not fair. Why not? Why do you get to tell me what I get to do with what's mine? 
because I want to. But will you believe? Who do you say God is? Who do you say Jesus is? But more importantly, who are they to you? In your day-to-day walking, you're coming and going. How are you rubbing shoulders with them? That's what he wants. See, like in Micah's time, we're pretty sure that God's satisfied that we showed up, might have dropped something in the basket, stood up at the right times, held up our hands, shook hands with somebody, gave somebody a hug, had a donut, went to the picnic. Like, I did, I did my deed. I'm good, checked all of my boxes. It's my personal belief that this time on Sunday mornings is time for us to come together and enrich and nourish each other so that we remember when we go out there we're not alone and there's a whole group of people who stand with us. That's what church is. But do you carry God into your everyday life? Are you allowing your belief to create openings where he can be who he is and transform you? The last question that's recorded in the Gospels is in the Gospel of John. And he asked the same question twice, and then he asked it a third time in a different way. And this is the restoration of Peter. And he says, do you love me, agape? Agape is that highest form of love. Unconditionally, totally, the idea of the beloved. Do you love me? And Peter says, oh Lord, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. I can't imagine like, I, I love you. I would do, like I feel so terrible about what I did. I love you like a brother. And Jesus says to him, second time, do you agape me? Do you love me the same way that I love you? And Peter goes, like, I like Peter. I think uh, if I had a bubble over his head, he'd be, there's this part of him that's going, I don't even know what he means. He's looking at the other guys going, like he's looking at John, do you know what he means? Because I don't know what he means. How do you love him agape? Phileo is the biggest I've got. It's the most I can imagine loving someone. Because remember, he hasn't been through Pentecost. He, but he is being exposed, and Jesus is saying, but there's more. But it's only through the power of the Spirit that maybe we can love Jesus that way. So then Jesus says, okay, Peter, I'll meet you. Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter goes, yes! I phileo you, I got it. But I think I would offer what Jesus is really saying is just like the loaves and the fishes, both times. First time, five loaves, two fishes. The second time, seven. Seven fishes and some loaves, I don't know. Seven breads, two fish. I don't know, he still feeds everybody. But he says, I will take whatever you give me, however small, however it's, it's not yet what I want it to be, and I will make it work because I love you. I'll take whatever you got. I'll meet you wherever you are. I'll walk your path wherever 
you'll let me travel with you. So why does he do that? Well, it's because he wants to invite us to his feast. He says, come party with me. Come to the table with me. Feast with me. Sit, sit at my table. I'm the fun table. I mean, don't you look for that at a party? Who's all sitting at the fun table? Wherever you're sitting with Jesus is going to be the fun table. But here's the kicker. It's not just feast with me. He says, feast on me. And let me transform you. Because on the night he was betrayed, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant. This is the new thing that I want to do in you that you've been blocking. Open yourself to me for the purpose of let me make you what you eat, which is me and who I designed you to be and my image of you. He'll do it with whatever you give him. But you gotta be willing to answer the questions. So come to the table and ask yourself, who do I say that he is? Do I love him? And am I willing to risk letting him be everything to me? Amen. Praise the Lord. We need him. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. If you want prayer today, there will be members of the prayer team down here. Ted is here to pray with you. We're also having a picnic on the patio, and if you haven't joined us, please stay. It's delightful, and we get to get to know each other and talk, and the food's not bad. You get a burger, you get a hot dog, they even have fake meat things. There's something for everybody, so please stay. So what does the Lord require of you? To walk humbly with your God so that you can do justice and you can love kindness. So that when you meet people out there who don't know Jesus, because of having met you, they'll want to know him too. Bless you, believe the gospel.